23rd of August, and you're listening to Kobe Time, a podcast on economies and markets from DBS Group Research. I am Taimur Beg, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 24th episode. Today, we are privileged to have access to a highly astute analyst from a highly regarded sovereign wealth fund. Dr. Prakash Kanan is Chief Economist and Head of Total Portfolio Management at GIC. GIC Private Limited, formerly known as Government of Singapore Investment Corporation, was established in 1981 to manage Singapore's foreign reserves. Prakash is currently responsible for medium-term global macro and asset allocation strategy for the firm. He also serves as a member of GIC's currency risk management group. Prior to GIC, Prakash was with the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C., where he was a member of the World Economic Outlook team. He started his career at the Central Bank of Malaysia during the Asian financial crisis and has also worked with GTE, now Verizon, Pension Fund. Prakash Kanan, welcome to Kopi Time. Hi, thank you, uh, Tamar. Uh, great pleasure to have you. Uh, Prakash, why don't we start with you giving us a sense of what GIC does for those who don't know and tell us also what you do there. Sure. Uh, well, firstly, uh, Tamar, I just wanted to... Uh... Congratulate you on uh, on copy time. I think it's uh, it's a great success. Uh, very nice uh, for you to have uh, gone it off the ground. Um, so GIC, um, you know, it's one of um, uh, two main uh, sovereign wealth funds in Singapore. Uh, we were established roughly about forty years ago now, and uh, we have expanded quite significantly since then. Uh, so we've got uh, offices in about uh, ten different countries. Uh, and uh, we really kind of cover the whole gamut uh, across public uh, as well as uh, private markets. Um, you know, I would say if there's one thing that um, we pride ourselves very much on, it's it's really our long-term orientation. Uh, and I would say that you know this uh, that culture really pervades uh, uh, everything that uh, that we do, both in our investments but also just in in our organizational uh, culture. Uh, so within GIC, uh, I'm the uh, chief economist of the organization. Uh, and also the head of a group uh, that's called uh, Total Portfolio Management. Uh, I would say the role uh, is, is kind of has two dimensions to it. Uh, so the first one uh, is really to help map out the uh, forward-looking investment environment uh, for the organization. Um, so you know, this includes basically what uh, we think about uh, some of the key macro variables, growth, inflation rates, et cetera. Uh, but also, um, you know, some sense of uh, forward uh, asset class uh, returns. Then the second dimension uh, is really about uh, helping uh, senior management with uh, asset allocation uh, decisions. Uh, and so here is um, is where our long-term nature really uh, uh, comes into play. So our uh, horizon that we we kind of base our strategic uh, asset allocation so is over a 20-year horizon. Uh, so it's really kind of, you know, forces us to think about some of the scenarios that could play out uh, over uh, uh, over such a, uh, a long horizon. So that's kind of a nutshell of uh, what GIC is and uh, and my role in it. Right. Uh, Prakash, you have a long-term investment horizon, but at the end of the day, you follow the conjunctural very closely as well. Uh, you just published your annual report and there is a feature article there. Uh, The first sentence of the feature article is the global community is facing a public health crisis, an economic crisis, and financial turmoil all at once, an unprecedented combination in modern times. So we will talk a little bit about that unprecedented combination here. Um, Let's begin with uh, the first theme in in that feature article, uh, your sense of the macro environment, uh, and maybe you can walk us through your views on the 
key economies like US, EU, China, and perhaps also ASEAN. Sure, happy to do that. Uh, I mean, in general, every time when we uh, release the uh, annual report, the focus is, is, uh, is usually on returns because um, that's kind of one of the key um, uh, metrics we have. And so this year, you know, it really is about um, a message of resilience. Uh, and, you know, um, we have steady long-term returns uh, that kind of uh, beat global inflation. Uh, and, you know, it is, it is against that, that unprecedented backdrop uh, that I think the uh, the feature article uh, was written. Uh, when, I, when I think about the recovery, uh, really uh, there, there are four drivers uh, that I see. Uh, the first is uh, about virus management um, uh, generally. Um, the second is uh, the structure of the economy. Uh, and so this is, you know, how much is the economy dependent on uh, manufacturing versus services, uh, on external demand uh, versus uh, uh, domestic demand. Then the third dimension is really about um, the policy uh, stimulus uh, that has taken place. And then the last one is about any kind of existing um, uh, economic imbalances. Uh, so you have these four, uh, these four drivers. Um, and in general, we found that the first two, which is how well the economy is, is um, both able to and, and as well as uh, in reality handling the virus, as well as the second one, uh, which is the structure of the economy, uh, these two end up being kind of the biggest drivers in, in how we kind of rank uh, countries along the recovery path. And if you look at both of those uh, two um, uh, factors, uh, China actually scores uh, relatively well, right? So, um, you know, they, they have really gotten ahead of, um, uh, of the virus. Uh, there is a little bit of a, of a first in, first out um, uh, principle with uh, with China, uh, and even as kind of new outbreaks um, uh, have been happening, uh, they really have been responding to them uh, uh, quite well. Um, you know, and then also I would say um, having a large domestic economy uh, uh, in China uh, has been helping. Um, they have been pushing a little bit more on um, uh, on the supply side uh, as opposed to um, uh, to to domestic demand. Uh, but, you know, I think on both those measures, um, uh, China has been scoring relatively well. Generally, I would say uh, that extends to uh, uh, North Asia. Uh, so Taiwan, uh, uh, even Korea, to an extent, uh, I think, uh, you know, scores well on that, uh, on that dimension. I think the, the part of the world that um, uh, is, uh, is really challenged, you know, even when you look at um, uh, those four criteria, I think is uh, is Latin America, um, and here I think um, you know obviously they are in uh, experiencing winter right now, uh, so there is a, a much more of those um, you know indoor behavior etc that could be exaggerating some of the virus uh, uh, cases, uh, but places like uh, you know Brazil, Chile etc, uh, the numbers still uh, still look uh, quite uh, quite worrying. Um, and, you know, as we kind of go a little bit into some of the secular drivers that we also talk about in the, uh, uh, in the annual report, uh, if, the, if the, um, the kind of pace of globalization also uh, starts mo uh, moderating, uh, then I think some of these economies that are a little bit uh, uh, further away from, you know, big uh, geographical centers such as China, as the U.S., uh, I think they would uh, would tend to uh, uh, suffer relatively more. I think if uh, if the headwinds to globalization uh, do really uh, end up being uh, uh, quite quite strong.
Right. Um, Prakash, that last point, I just want you to talk a little bit about it. Um, there was a time when global trade GDP rose steadily, but that was not till recently. I mean, kind of stopped around 2008, 2009, global financial crisis, lost a lot of ground, began to pick up very um, uh, slowly uh, and then got again undermined by A, the trade war and B, the uh, pandemic-induced global slowdown. Um, so the countries that haven't prospered on the back of globalization, and you know we have a lot of aspiring emerging markets, let's say like the ones like India and Indonesia, should they sort of give up on that strategy? Because over the long term, if that trajectory remains flat and countries like China remain competitive, what chance do the new entrants have to leverage off of globalization? So I think um, it has been uh, proven both uh, theoretically as well as empirically that um, really kind of making an, um, the emphasis on um, uh, you know, uh, export-led growth uh, is really the best chance, I think, for a lot of these economies, both to create jobs uh, at home uh, but as well, actually, to to increase um, uh, productivity, um, I think you know if if it's interesting when you look at um, uh, the kind of public attitude towards uh, globalization. Actually, you find uh, in uh, Asia generally uh, the attitudes towards uh, globalization, especially in terms of of goods, uh, is actually very high. Right? A lot of people do think that globalization is a force for good, I think, in, in this part of the world. And so when you look at even at economies uh, like India and, uh, and Indonesia, uh, I think that really still is the best strategy uh, for these countries to, to really lift up the uh, living standards. I think it becomes more challenging when it's, uh, it's globalization of, um, uh, of services um, and, and especially globalization of, uh, of labor. Uh, and I think here is where some of the uh, the challenges, which you know we have seen in the in the developed world, uh, are also you know a little bit relevant uh, for for these countries. Um, but in terms of uh, manufacturing, you know, getting jobs, really kind of uh, lifting these uh, economies up, I think that strategy still has uh, has room to run. Right. Um, coming back to the uh, sort of near term, because um, uh, some of the of you know, shortfall in demand, they're so large that if we don't have a big V-shaped recovery, this could sort of you know lead to a major sort of arithmetic impact in terms of the you know recovery path and keep us below the level that we saw last year for a very long time. Um, and since in your report uh, you do talk about the intersection of financial risk along with uh, growth risk and pandemic risk, um, Prakash, there will be industries that would face massive headwind through the pandemic and even in a post-pandemic world, they probably will not see the demand that they saw before and therefore consolidation is inevitable, even if some stimulus and support measures related band-aid is in place right now. And then there's the issue of the balance sheet risk, which also you, know, you have been highlighting for a while, the, the ballooning global debt burden. So share with us your view on these two issues, the kind of industry consolidation we can see uh, in, in the coming quarters and years, and the balance sheet risk that is out there both at the corporate level and sovereign level. Sure. Um, I think on the, um, on the industry uh, consolidation uh, aspect, um, I think it's uh, probably not surprising to hear that 
uh, this crisis has been having an uneven impact uh, on small and medium scale uh, enterprises. Um, I think you know we've we've seen research uh, at least um, uh, for the case of the U.S., where there's been about 12 percent of uh, uh, SMEs which have uh, basically um, uh, you know closed their business uh, for good. Uh, uh, default rates um, uh, have also started to uh, uh, to pick up. Um, so you know it's uh, as you said probably inevitable that you know in some of the harder uh, hit uh, companies uh, within you know hospitality, retail, etc. Uh, some form of um, uh, of consolidation uh, is is likely to uh, to happen. Um, I think the um, the challenge here is that a lot of the risk. Uh, is being uh, transferred onto the balance sheet uh, of the sovereign. Uh, and I think this has a few implications. I think the first is um, it's a question of divergences across countries. Uh, and so, you know, some countries, uh, obviously the more developed economies are the ones which uh, uh, have reserve currencies. Uh, they are much more able to bear this, um, uh, this risk transfer. Uh, than some of the uh, emerging and especially uh, developed economies. And so I think here, this risk transfer um, and that that intersection of small, medium scale uh, with uh, countries that, that do not have this kind of uh, policy space, I think that's where, um, you know, the, the, the risk of, you know, quote unquote, permanent impairment, I think, lies um, uh, pro- probably the largest. Um, Whereas I think in in some of the developed uh, economies where you can have this risk transfer, uh, the challenge becomes uh, when do you when do you um, uh, uh, how, how do how do you wean countries uh, wean companies off of this uh, uh, this dependence? Uh, and so I think you will start to see this a series of these kinds of uh, you know so-called fiscal cliffs, uh, where either programs uh, uh, start expiring. Uh, and then, um, you know, suddenly you find that uh, companies need to bear the burden uh, of these uh, uh, higher debts uh, uh, on their own. Um, and so I think, you know, that the, those two divergences, one across countries uh, and one, um, uh, you know, between the private and the public uh, are going to be very important. Uh, so here, you know, I, um, I think the move by the G20 um, uh, as well as the, uh, some of the other, you know, private uh, uh, debt reorganization uh, uh, efforts, I, I think are absolutely essential uh, because for the low-income countries, developing countries, uh, they're going to find it very difficult um, to 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 shoulder this uh, uh, this burden, uh, and so some kind of uh, of relief, I think, will become necessary, uh, and and so I think you know uh, even even as we go into 2021. Uh, this higher debt issue will definitely be one of the legacies which uh, will have very long, uh, very long tail effects. Indeed, Prakash, one thing that I worry about is the likely politicization of this uh, debt relief, because I fear that particularly with the U.S. having such a strong influence in the IMF World Banks of the world, that any type of Paris Club type restructuring would come with the U.S. insisting that there's a bilateral debt relief from China to all the countries that have borrowed under uh, Belt and Road Initiative, and that could probably muddy waters. Uh, do you have a view on that? 
No, I mean, I think, I think um, uh, definitely over the last few years, uh, China has become a very important uh, uh, creditor, I think, to a lot of these countries. Uh, I think actually they, they have started to make um, um, uh, efforts at, um, you know, kind of quasi-moratorium uh, on some of these um, uh, bilateral uh, uh, debts. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. I think uh, insofar as any of these efforts are likely to succeed, uh, I think China has to play uh, has to play a very important role. Right. Um, in your um, section in the annual report, you also talk about the paradigm shifts in policy making. Both fiscal and monetary are supercharged already around the world. And then you uh, highlight a couple of risks. One is the increased risk of higher inflation over the medium term, and then the risk of currency moves affecting uh, asset returns. Uh, why don't we uh, weigh in on those two issues? Sure. You know, you know, when when we were writing this uh, this report, you know, we realized that actually, you know, this issue of uh, of post COVID trends uh, is probably one which uh, you know many commentators uh, uh, globally have uh, have already talked about. So we we're really trying to think about, you know, well, what value can we can we add to this uh, to this debate? And I, I think from from my perspective, I think the one um, really underappreciated. Uh, uh, change, which I think is likely to be with us for a while, and especially for uh, investors, uh, I think he's going to be the uh, key uh, uh, post-COVID uh, trend. It's really about this paradigm shift uh, in uh, in policies, uh, and and I think there there are um, there are a few aspects of this, right? So the first one um, is really kind of. Uh, you can think about it as an acceleration of a trend that was already happening right. um, a couple of years be- before, and which is that central banks, are, uh, especially the major central banks, are really moving along the path that um, they are going to be changing their reaction function. Um, and so, you know, while we are all very used to a central bank which uh, hikes interest rates uh, in anticipation of uh, high inflation, uh, I think this time is going to be very different. Uh, central banks are actually going to commit to being behind the curve. Um, uh, they are probably going to encode um, uh, higher inflation into uh, their new strategic reviews. It's not just happening at the Fed, also at the, at the ECB. Uh, and so this, this, um, this uh, change in the in their reaction function, I think is 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 very important. Then the second one, I think, is uh, is on fiscal. Um, and here, um, you know, I, I would say uh, the change is really that uh, there's a lot more, um, uh, call it uh, ambivalence or or a little bit more acceptance. Um, that the lower rate, uh, lower interest rate environment really changes the dynamics on, on debt sustainability. Um, and I think this, this change is very important um, for uh, especially places where in the past that political pendulum, uh, you know, always tended to swing back towards uh, austerity after you experience such a, such a big fiscal expansion like this. And I mean, we only have to go back to what happened in Europe uh, you know, 2011, 2012, where um, you know, the, the, uh, the push towards uh, austerity was, um, uh, was, was very strong. 
uh, I, I think that's changed. Uh, I think that um, uh, policymakers and you know across the ideological spectrum right, um, have uh, are willing to actually uh, tolerate higher deficits, tolerate uh, higher uh, higher debt levels. Um, and I think this is this is uh, also a very meaningful uh, paradigm shift. Now, what, what are the consequences of that? Um, I think the consequences are are a few. So we list out two uh, in the in the annual report. One is, you know, um, probably for the for the first time in in many years, I think the risk of higher inflation uh, is is meaningful. Um, and you know, here it's not just about inflation, you know, going to two and two and a half, but actually even even going to three and uh, and above. And then the second one, um, I think, is that uh, it does create uh, more uh, more fragility. Uh, I think on on the part of the balance sheet of the sovereign. Um, I think there is a. Uh, uh, increased reliance and the belief that interest rates will always remain low. Uh, this need not necessarily be the case. Um, you know, you could have um, uh, the next crisis being one where, um, you know, for some reason, whether that's uh, uh, because of increased risk premiums or because of uh, inflation shocks, where actually interest rates start going up, uh, and then suddenly your debt dynamics become uh, become uh, uh, a lot worse. Uh, and so, you know, these two these two things, I think, are very important, uh, at least for uh, for investors like us, um, to really think about how we how we should price uh, assets. Uh, and the reason I say that is because I think there is a belief that um, you know lower interest rates automatically translates to a lower cost of capital, um, and you know then that could justify uh, higher valuations. Um, Whereas we think that, well, you know, cost of capital also has an equity risk premium uh, embedded inside there. Uh, and given, you know, that you not only have a riskier world going forward, but also that, um, you know, the longer term uh, growth has been uh, impacted somewhat, uh, that these uh, need not necessarily uh, uh, cancel out. Uh, and so, you know, I think these this, uh, changes in the, in the uh, policy paradigm, you know, if I was to name one thing that that I think uh, is the, probably the most meaningful for investors to deal in this uh, post-COVID environment, I think uh, that that would be it. Uh, absolutely, Prakash, I, I fully agree with you. The way I sort of look at it is that there's a reason rates are low because long-term potential growth rate is declining, therefore the return on capital is declining. So I hear in the markets, everybody talks about low rates and there is nothing other to invest and therefore um, the equity risk premium could be justified. But at the same time, at some point, earnings matter and earnings are a function of nominal growth, which is a function of real growth and inflation. And we may end up getting some inflation. I'm still unsure about how we're gonna get any meaningful growth to uh, make all this work out. So that takes me to the hot button question of the moment. Are equity markets in a bubble, Prakash? <laughs> well, that's, uh, you know, I, I actually came across some uh, uh, some uh, academic articles which are still uh, uh, debating whether the, the 2000 uh, <laughs> equity bubble is, is does, that, does, that even, does that even constitute a bubble? Uh, look, I mean, you know, I, I think I think these things are always um, uh, difficult to uh, uh, to call. Uh, and I think, you know, it's it's a little bit. Um, 
it's a little bit, uh, you know, even interesting that 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 we can actually entertain a question when you know we're faced with a pandemic and uh, and you know the GDP is seeing record contractions uh, globally. Uh, that that you know that 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 could even be a uh, a bubble. Um, so I think I think where where most uh, uh, people are, are worried about, I think, is really kind of a, a subset uh, within the. Um, uh, the equity universe, right? So, uh, if you look at broad indices, uh, mm-hmm. I think you know outside of uh, uh, China uh, and then uh, Nasdaq and um, I guess uh, slightly S and P, but uh, most most markets are still trading below uh, their their all time highs. Uh, but I think you definitely get some pockets of exuberance in uh, in, in global tech uh, and particularly kind of large cap tech. Uh, and you know, and this is not this is not just a, a U.S. phenomenon. Uh, I think you you see it uh, uh, also in um, uh, in China. You know, some of the big uh, uh, tech names, um, and even some of the the, the smaller ones uh, like uh, Meituan, etc. You know, I mean, there are some of their their price trajectories really has gone uh, has gone parabolic. Um, and I think this this in a way goes back to to our earlier. Uh, point, which is that, um, you know, it's 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 typical in an environment where where you don't see growth coming, that the market really chases after um, uh, whatever growth uh, there is, and and so here it really is uh, uh, the 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 tech companies who you know arguably have been the, the beneficiaries from from this pandemic, and then at the same time you have this kind of lower uh, interest rates, uh, where a lot of these companies are. You can see them as kind of long-duration assets, uh, and so they do benefit uh, disproportionately when uh, when interest rates uh, uh, fall. Um, you know, I, from from our perspective, you know, obviously we we are you know, we are invested in these tech companies, and we have kind of enjoyed uh, uh, the performance, uh, and they really are you know in, in general very good, very well-run uh, uh, companies. But I think where we are a little bit more concerned is kind of the the periphery. Around this, uh, these these big, these big uh, tech companies, uh, where I think um, you are starting to see, um, uh, you know, very uh, exuberant uh, growth projections, um, and there is a lot of uh, extrapolation that uh, you know companies can either be the next Google, the next Amazon, etc. So you are starting to see, I think, some froth uh, around the uh, around the edges. Um, and so, as a overall portfolio, uh, uh, GIC is still uh, very cautious, very defensive, uh, because you know our mandate is kind of twofold, right? We not only enhance the value of Singapore's reserves, but we also have uh, a mandate to to preserve uh, the value of reserves. And one of the indicators that we use for which uh, you know there can be a higher risk of of permanent impairment. Uh, is if you really buy at a at a very high price, um, and I think that's you know one one thing which I think at least for this uh, subset of uh, uh, of companies, I think you are you are seeing those uh, those levels. Absolutely, um, Prakash. From equities to currencies, um, now again some of the very short term dynamic, but this could be the beginning of some sort of a long term uh, trend as well, which is the U.S. dollar. 
for the longest time. Every time there is a risk aversion related development around the world, global investors flock to the U.S. dollar. And we saw this as recently as in February, March, when the dollar spiked at a time of uh, the first set of worrying news about the pandemic was spreading around the world. But since then, uh, it's coincided with uh, a rally in gold, uh, easing off of the U.S. dollar, especially against the euro, but also against other uh, major currencies, not against emerging markets yet. Um, your thoughts on the currency markets? Sure. Yeah, I, you know, we actually uh, highlighted this uh, as one aspect of um, uh, of the consequences of the um, of the paradigm shift, which is, you know, once you have interest rates all falling to close to kind of a effective lower bound, uh, currencies are going to start playing a bigger role in uh, determining uh, total returns uh, from investing. Uh, with regards to the dollar, you know, actually most of our uh, uh, valuation metrics uh, just show a, a pretty mild uh, overvaluation. Um, so you know, it's not uh, uh, what we had, let's say, in uh, in early two thousands. Um, you know, when when the U.S. was uh, running a current account deficit of close to to six percent at that point. Um, so you know, yes, there is some uh, headwind from uh, uh, valuations, but but not not that um, uh, meaningful. Um, I think the the interesting thing sometimes we think about the dollar is not so much what happens in the U.S., but actually what happens in the uh, in, in the rest of the world. Um, and so you know, if we do have that scenario where uh, the rest of the world uh, uh, growth really takes off. Um, and so, you know, whether there's, there's some notion of, um, uh, of, of, of confidence that, uh, uh, that returns uh, and going back to my kind of four factor framework that, you know, whether you think that uh, uh, the impact of the stimulus uh, in some of these economies uh, start, start improving, uh, the virus gets uh, uh, better managed all relative to the U.S., uh, then, then, you know, I think the, uh, you could see actually the dollar kind of depreciating uh, in line with um, uh, with kind of better better global growth. Uh, unfortunately, that's not our our baseline scenario at the moment. Um, you know, we think it's it's still going to be a, a stop start um, uh, trajectory. I think uh, at least for the next uh, year or so. Um, I think you know at this point we we really hope that uh, that the virus is not seasonal. Um, because uh, you know, if it if it truly was uh, seasonal, then you know, uh, in the fall and the winter, we may see another another spike up in in cases. Uh, and so, because of that, um, you know, I think yes, uh, the dollar probably still has a bit of room to to depreciate. Uh, but you know, it's not it's not a, a meaningful uh, a downtrend from from where we are today. Right. And you currently said it really depends on the rest of the world, particularly with respect to the euro. I think this this big 1.8 trillion euro fiscal package that got formalized uh, late last month it certainly has put some tailwind behind the euro. But at the same time, the outlook for the eurozone is by no means, uh, you know, clear sunshine. Uh, and hence, you know, I think it would take a very brave investor to be outright positive the euro against the U.S. dollar over the longer term. Um, Prakash, uh, from FX to rates, uh, of course, you know, negative rates are the most striking characteristic of the developed market debt market. Uh, just unbelievable the amount of outstanding uh, paper with a negative yielding uh, coupon. Uh, what's driving this spread and, and how will this all play out over the long run? 
Yeah, um, you know, there, there definitely is uh, 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 something which I would say maybe even 10 years ago we, we probably thought was, uh, was uh, uh, unimaginable. Um, I, I, think, I think at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's a question of, um, uh, it's two things. So one is that how much equilibrium, uh, equilibrium rates um, uh, have fallen. Uh, and then second is, uh, you know, whether central banks have been willing to, to cross that Rubicon into negative rates uh, on, on the policy rate front. Uh, I think on the first point, uh, I would say that uh, equilibrium real rates have fallen uh, probably globally, um, and so this is this is uh, true. Uh, I think uh, even uh, even in the uh, uh, in, in the US, um, but I think on the second point, um, you know, it's it's only the um, uh, I would say the Japanese, well, the Europeans first, and then the Japanese. Uh, where on the policy side, they've you know they have decided to cross that Rubicon into into negative rates. Uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, hasn't, um, and in a way, um, there are still some I would say legacy issues on the on the money market side, which which makes it a bit more difficult. But um, you know that that has kept the ten-year rate in the U.S. Uh, relatively uh, uh, better supported, right? because I think once. Uh, if the Fed signals that it is is willing to go uh, negative, uh, then that changes the the distribution uh, of rates uh, all all over the curve, uh, and so uh, you know that that will meaningfully impact rates uh, even even at the long end. Um, but you know I, I think the um, the fixed income uh, uh, investors. Um, for them, you know, it the curve matters a lot more uh, than the level of uh, uh, of rates, um, and so you know, at least for uh, uh, at some point uh, in the past, when uh, when the European curves were still uh, relatively steep, not many of them minded uh, negative rates uh, because for a you know kind of a, a levered bond portfolio, uh, you were still getting kind of decent. Uh, carry and roll um, that that uh, uh, you know compensated you uh, for the uh, for the negative uh, negative rates. Uh, I think that's that's changed a little bit now. So so you know curves are flat um, uh, all over the world, uh, and I think what the consequence of this is is just that people are getting uh, pushed into uh, uh, riskier assets, um, and so you know I think. Fixed income, uh, especially sovereign bonds, used to play this very unique role in uh, in a portfolio because not only did it give you protection, but it also paid you for it um, in the sense that it was able to give you income. I think going forward, uh, most asset allocators are going to have to split split that role. Um, so they're going to have to seek income from a separate source, uh, and this could be, uh, you know, high quality credit. Uh, or possibly even um, uh, high dividend paying uh, uh, stocks. And then they're going to have to try and find protection uh, from, um, uh, from somewhere else. Um, and so I think this, this kind of um, uh, splitting would, would likely be uh, the, the, the trend that, uh, uh, that happens. Well, Prakash, you touched on credit, so we'll, we'll transition there. Um, we have seen credit spreads narrow substantially in, in developed markets. Uh, we're basically back to pre-pandemic levels. It hasn't 
compress as much in emerging markets. Uh, but at the same time, as you and I have already talked about, that there's considerable uncertainty about growth and returns. Uh, and yet uh, investors seem to be lulled by the wall of liquidity and have a, a you know, great deal of comfort in, in holding these assets, paying very low yields. Um, geographically speaking, you're comfortable with the credit outlook you know, in China, US, Europe? Yeah, you know, so uh, uh, I think especially when you take uh, the all-in yield um, for credit, so, you know, not just the spread, but also how the base rates have fallen, uh, you know, you're, you're seeing kind of record low uh, yields uh, across the, the credit spectrum. Uh, and so, you know, at least from a, um, a top-down perspective, um, as you said, going back to some of the risks we've been talking about, you're, you're not getting compensated, I think, for uh, for the risks. And then I think um, the second thing to think about is just um, what are your thoughts on recovery values? Um, you know, I think uh, what we have been more uh, concerned about is just that when you look at the overall uh, debt levels, uh, we've been concerned that actually recovery values may not be as high as uh, they used to be historically. So they could just be in the 20 to 30% uh, range rather than, than something uh, uh, much higher uh, in the in the past. Uh, and so, you know, you've got to factor that in uh, as well uh, into, um, uh, into uh, uh, how much compensation you require. So, you know, our, our strategy, at least uh, in-house, has really been about kind of staying away from the uh, broad indices uh, and actually kind of, you know, going in at the, uh, at, at the company level. Uh, and here, I think, um, you know, you, you, you still can find uh, uh, good names, names that um, uh, you think will be, will be money good uh, at, at, at the end of the day. Uh, and so, you know, it, it kind of almost goes back to, uh, to I don't know investment 101 uh, where you know you're kind of underwriting you know company by company uh, looking at the balance sheets looking at the fundamentals um, and I think that uh, has to be the the way to uh, to do it because I think you know the the the, the broad index I think kind of covers a lot of uh, a lot of variation uh, um, uh, within the index. And um, you could find an environment where, you know, yields blow up such that they wipe away, you know, let's say five, six years of carry uh, in, a, in a very short, uh, in a short span. Uh, so unless you're really comfortable with the names that you're, uh, that you're holding, uh, I think it's, uh, it could be a very challenging uh, environment. And absolutely, it's going to be challenging, uh, Prakash, because with the government's role expanding substantially in the you know, way the economy will be managed going forward, uh, they will also have a lot of say in restructuring of large corporations and industries. And I cannot imagine the public being very sympathetic to making credit investors from the private sector whole. Uh, and therefore, there'll be pressure for you know further haircuts and so on. Uh, something that I feel, again, the market is fairly oblivious of at the current juncture, uh, whereas I think anybody who sort of recognizes that the government's role will increase should probably be a little more cautious. Um, I want to uh, switch to something um, not at all uh, conjunctural, but more of a broader issue, and that is to deal with uh, sort of GIC's 
both mandate and views on sort of the investments, which is broadly known as ESG, so sustainable investment or things that meet uh, high degrees of environmental, social and uh, governance related criteria. Uh, what can you tell us? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, you know I, um, I kind of started off the conversation um, highlighting our um, long-term focus. Uh, and so, you know, in that sense, I would say sustainability is, is kind of really core to our, uh, to our mandate. Um, you know, when you look across the E, S, and G, I would say uh, at least elements of governance uh, have been, you know, probably one of the number one criterion uh, from our uh, investment philosophy almost, almost from, from day one. Uh, and so that, you know, that, that, that it's really kind of been wired in into our, uh, our, our DNA. Uh, and I, that roughly translates to, to a belief that, um, that actually companies with stronger sustainability practices uh, will, will generate better risk-adjusted returns over the long term. Um, and so, you know, I think this notion that, um, uh, that there could be a, a trade-off, I think, uh, may, may be true for, for short-term horizons. But, you know, at the end of the day, we think that um, uh, these two things um, are consistent with each other. And I think they're going to be increasingly so uh, when, you know, the rest of uh, not only the investment community, but I think the broader stakeholders um, uh, demand that. Uh, and so, you know, these two, these two uh, principles of, you know, kind of being long-term oriented nature uh, and sustainability, I think they're just going to, uh, to, to merge with, uh, with each other. Um, and so what, what we have done is, you know, we have this, uh, this uh, kind of a three-pillar uh, framework, um, which, you know, the first one is, is called uh, offense, second one's called uh, defense, uh, and then the third one is, uh, we call it excellence, but it's, it's kind of more uh, organizational in nature. So, so on, the, on, the, on the offense side, it's really about, um, you know, how can we um, uh, capture opportunities? You know, you know, how can we kind of get ahead of the curve? Um, and so that is, um, uh, you know, we've got internal efforts about uh, trying to uh, invest in uh, thematic opportunities uh, so this is uh, everything from renewable uh, energy, uh, and then our, our real estate uh, uh, business, for example. You know, these guys have really been been ahead of the curve when it comes to um, uh, this notion of green buildings, etc. So that's been a big, uh, a big push as well. Uh, and then I, you know, all these other uh, technologies that kind of support you know, transition to to uh, low carbon uh, uh, economies. You know, that's also been uh, been um, a big, a big push. So a lot of things, I think, on the uh, uh, on the uh, uh, offense side, um, and then on the defense, um, the defense, I think, is really looking um, at uh, some of our existing holdings, uh, particularly those that that just kind of sit in uh, in, in benchmarks. Um, and so, you know, this have everything to do with um, you know physical risks, uh, you know, that kind of could lead to uh, potential stranded assets. Uh, Etc. Uh, and so I would say probably since about three years ago, we started uh, regularly screening uh, our existing uh, uh, portfolios. Uh, we've actually also started uh, actively engaging uh, our, uh, our portfolio companies. 
uh, you know, just kind of, at least for the bigger companies, kind of maintaining that regular dialogue with senior management, uh, uh, boss of directors, et cetera, uh, you know, voting responsibly uh, on, on some of these issues. Uh, and so I think on, on a lot of these um, uh, efforts, at least looking, you know, kind of taking a more serious look at um, things that we, uh, that we already, uh, already own. And then the last pillar, uh, this kind of excellence uh, pillar, is is like I said, really, really about our, our, our own uh, organization. So I think, you know, it's uh, it's not enough to just push the ESG lens uh, through uh, either the things we own or the things we want to buy, but I think we've got to push it through uh, our our own uh, institution. Um, and so here, you know, it's um, it's everything about. Uh, you know, cutting down the use of uh, non-recyclable uh, materials. Um, we've improved the energy efficiency of our buildings. Um, you know, in fact, um, we've we've actually uh, uh, trying to become carbon neutral. I think in our operations uh, by the next uh, financial year um, across our ten global offices, um, and then even in some of our business partners. You know, like we, we've we've become a lot more. Uh, uh, strict about what we expect from them. Uh, you know, we don't enter into contracts with those that that don't meet our standards. So, so you know, I, I think it's it's really been a, a very uh, comprehensive effort in all these dimensions. And uh, you know, t- t- to be honest, I would say it's it's one of the few issues in in GIC which um, is really is really kind of um, motivational almost. Uh, so I think some of the younger staff, you know, when they join. Uh, you could argue that they, they even uh, they even demanded uh, from from us, uh, and so you know it's been it's been actually quite a quite an interesting journey uh, at least over the last uh, three to five years. Prakash, we we see very similar uh, thought processes within DBS too. So nice to know that you know we're at least aligned on that matter. Uh, thank you so much for your insights. Uh, greatly appreciate your time. No, thank you, thank you, Tim. I was uh, enjoyed the conversation. Uh, me too. Uh, thanks to also our listeners. Uh, Martin Taki produced Kopi Time, which is available on YouTube and major podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcast. You can also find our live streams, webinars, and research publication by Googling DBS Research Library. 